Father, we, we need that clarity in every part of our life. As, as we leave from worship, we go out to interact in the community. We, we know we need your leading. We know we need your guidance. We, we often just kind of feel lost and wandering around in this world. And so, Father, that's why we come to your word. We come to your word every day because we need that guidance every single day. And we come corporately to hear you speak to us here because we need to hear that word as the body of Christ. And so, Father, we pray now as we come to your word that you would speak to us this morning and that you would speak clearly and powerfully to each one of us. And there's so many things going on in our hearts and so many things going on in our minds that can distract us from hearing what you're saying. And so we pray that you'd push all of that off to the side and that you'd help us to focus clearly and to hear clearly what you have to say to us this morning. Father, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. We're continuing our way through John. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to John chapter 2, verse 12 through 22. Otherwise, we will have the scripture reading up on the screen. John 2, verses 12 through 22. After this, this is after the wedding at Cana. That's what we read last. After that, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those selling doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you make my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous signs can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It's God's word. So I, this past week, I, I came across a blog post uh, that quoted an article from a newspaper that was kind of objecting to some of the new trends in Christian music. And here's some of the things that this, this article said. It was written by a pastor. I know it's really small. I just wanted it all on one screen. There's several reasons for opposing this new music. One, it's just too new. Two, it's often worldly, even blasphemous. The new Christian music's not as pleasant as the more established style. There's so many songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much of an emphasis on instrumental music rather than godly lyrics. The new music creates disturbances, make, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along without it. It's a money-making scene, and some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. Um, and what I find interesting is this is actually from an article from 300 years ago. Ha! 
and it was written by a pastor who was saying this about Isaac Watts, who wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Joy to the World, along with like 15 other hymns that are in the hymnal that we have, that we go through. And, you know, I say all of this to just remind us that what, what some have called recently the, the worship wars, um, that's always been a thing in the church. That's been around, um, you know, in the beginning, the church sang Gregorian chant, right? Where everybody just kind of sang the same note at the same time. And then eventually somebody said, maybe we could introduce some harmonies and some melodies in that. And they said, you can't do that. That would show disunity in the church. That would be dishonoring to God to sing harmonies and melodies in the church. That was happening like almost 2,000 years ago. Um, and, you know, most of us, most of you probably more so than, than myself, but I remember the, the worship wars of the 90s and early 2000s, right? Where, I mean, it got so heated in, in churches and churches in this area where churches split over it. Where half the church wanted to sing hymns, half the church wanted to sing contemporary music, and so half the church went and started their own church so they could sing the music that they wanted to sing. You can already kind of hear, I'm sure from the tone of my voice, what I have to think about it. Um, but most of what, and, and I was part of this, and so I'm not trying to like separate myself out from it. I remember having some of those arguments and being frustrated about certain things. But, but all of that tension in the worship wars uh, flows from a complete misunderstanding of worship. I know that's strong, but it's true. And, and I'm applying that to my own attitude that I had back then. I remember talking to people back then, and that kind of the core of what people's frustrations were is like, well, this music speaks to me more than any other style of music. Um, and, uh, you know, people use other reasons, and we all try to, even I found myself trying to, like, I know that's not a great answer, so I'm going to try to make it sound more spiritual and try to figure out how my music is more honoring to God. Um, but what it really boiled down to underneath all of that was the people saying, well, this is the style of music that moves my emotions, moves my feeling over these other styles of music. That's why I like it. It, it moves me. It speaks to me more. And that's, that's a misunderstanding. It's actually like a complete misunderstanding of worship because we have to ask the question. Um, that's not the question, but who is worship for? Is it for us or is it for God, right? Or, or why do we come to worship every Sunday? Do we, come to, do we come to gather in this worship service for our sake or for, or for God's sake? Um, and like when you ask it that starkly, we all know the answer. We're like, well, well, we're coming for, for God, right? We're coming here to worship God. And that, but that's why we come. That's the reason we come. Of course, we receive benefit from that. We're built up. We're encouraged. We're strengthened in our faith. But the main reason we come to worship on a Sunday morning is to worship God. We sing songs of praise to God because he's worthy of our praise, not to make ourselves feel better. 
We, we pray to God because we, by bringing our cares and anxieties to God, brings him glory and honor. It's not just for our benefit. We, we, we hear God's word preached and proclaimed from worship, from the pulpit, because that brings glory and honor to God. Because we're coming to God saying, we need your guidance. Speak to us. It's not primarily about us. And so it's a reminder to each one of us that since worship isn't about us, and it's about God, it actually doesn't matter what we like. It matters what God likes. And uh, if God commanded clearly that we are to worship him by sitting on the floor, crisscross applesauce, singing Gregorian chant with one hand in the air, it doesn't matter if you like it or not. That's how we should worship him. Thankfully, he doesn't. But it, that's the, the point is, it's not about us, or it's not about what we want. It's all about the God that we worship and how he tells us to worship. And that's what's going on in this, in this passage with Jesus in the temple. Um, because Jesus is wound up, right? Um, this isn't the, the picture of Jesus, like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus hot and bothered, kicking tail and taking names. And, and it's important to get that from this story because that's like everything about the way the story's written, the way Jesus is interacting, the way people are responding to Jesus shows that he is angry and he's righteously angry. And it's important not to water it down. And even, uh, I mean, we'll see eventually, I think the NIV translates some things funny because they're like, oh, I don't think Jesus would have done that. And I'm thinking he did it. He's really angry. He's not. Um, I, listen. So every morning I come to church, I listen to somebody else preach my sermon to me. Not my exact sermon, but preach on that passage. And so this morning I was listening to Alistair Begg. He's kind of my go-to. And he was preaching and he said, do you think Jesus went into the temple and said, uh, my dear people, I do not appreciate the way that you're worshiping. Could you please leave? Like, that's not the picture. That was, he's like, this was a carpenter. Yeah, you know, he was a like a blue collar kind of a guy. He had calluses on his hands. He was big and strong. And he went in and said, you need to leave. And he made him leave because he was angry. Because this was something that was wrong. And so Jesus wasn't always kind of the soft spoken guy that we paint him to be. Sometimes he was angry and blunt and took some bold action. And to kind of help us understand what happened here, I want to help us, I want to take a decent amount of time to understand what the temple looked like because I don't think we often picture this. And so, so here's a picture of the temple. Okay? And you can kind of see, like, in the back, top left, you see that's the holy place. And then inside the holy place is the holy of holies, okay? Um, and so you can kind of get a picture of that. And then you can see there's different courtyards, right? So you can see around the holy place, they call that the priest's courtyard. And then out in front of that, they call that the woman's courtyard. And then outside of that is the Gentiles' courtyard, right? And so the Gentiles were allowed to come into the temple area, 
but they weren't allowed to enter beyond that first gate into the women's courtyard. Only Jewish men and women could be in that courtyard. And then obviously the women had to stay in the women's courtyard and the men could go on beyond that into the priest's courtyard. So that's kind of what it is. But now I'm going to go to another picture because I want us to see how big this area is because I think most of us picture this to be about the size of our church building. But this is the temple compared to an American football field. Um, if you took that football field and turned it like this, you could see that you could fit at least three of them in the temple, probably three and a half, maybe four, right? The a football field's 120 yards long and, and a little over 50 yards wide. To, to get that, like, to figure out how big this room is compared to a football field, you take this room and multiply it by nine, and you'll be close. It's huge. And the temple was three football fields at least big. When you, you know, some of you are going to go home and you're going to watch the Packers. And I'm not going to say whether I think they're going to win or lose. But you're going to watch them and you're going to watch them running up and down the field. And you're going to think, Jesus cleared a temple that was three times bigger than this field. That's how big it was. It wasn't like he just walked into a church building and kicked people out. It was a massive area that he, he cleared. And that's actually the smallest of the options. Um, because most likely the sellers and the money changers weren't actually in this part of the temple. Because most likely they were not Jews. Most likely they were Gentiles. And so most likely they were out in the court of the Gentiles. And so I'm going to show you another picture. I don't have all the direct, like exact dimensions of the court of the Gentiles. I did find a picture that kind of gives us a representation of what this would look like. But when I switch, remember this size comparison because the temple is going to look really small. <laughs> in that picture. But that little temple right in the middle of the screen, that's three football fields bigger, and then around it is the court of the Gentiles. And that's like twice as big at least as the temple. We're talking ten football fields or so size difference, and that's what Jesus cleared. That takes a lot of time and energy and continued frustration and continued dedication to say something needs to change. It didn't just happen in the flash of a moment. And we read that when, when Jesus walked into the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and he saw the money changers sitting there. And, and, and if you take a moment to just picture the scene and try to put yourselves in their position, like get, get in your head, pretend like you are one of these people selling and changing money. They had a really good argument to say, we're actually here to help people worship God. We're here to help them worship, and we're here to help them worship God rightly. We're help, you know, people would travel in to offer sacrifices. They, they couldn't travel with all of their livestock for these offerings. They would maybe die along the way, and so it made sense for them to get to Jerusalem and then buy the offering that they needed to, to offer. So, like, we're helping people offer right sacrifices to God. And people would come in, and they'd have different coins from all over the world. They, that coin wouldn't work to pay taxes or to offer sacrifices. 
sacrifices, so they need to change money, right? Just like we do. We go to another country, and so they're saying, we're actually helping people pay temple taxes and make offerings. We are here to help people worship God rightly. So what's the problem? Jesus had nothing to do with it. And we read, he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changer of the money changers and overturned their tables. And as I mentioned last week, I'm going to mention, I don't know, almost every week is trying to make sure that we're really carefully not reading our own assumptions into these stories, but trying to read the text clearly to understand what's going on. And so we read that Jesus made a whip of cords. Nobody, nobody doubts that, but how did he use the whip? And it says, he used the whip to drive them all out of the temple, along with the sheep and the oxen. That makes people really uncomfortable. And the NIV changes it. It says, the NIV says, he drove the sheep and the oxen out. But this says he drove them all out, the, the money changers and the sellers, with a whip. And, oh yeah, and the sheep and the oxen. Jesus wasn't mad at the sheep or the oxen. They weren't doing anything wrong. It was the sellers and the money changers that were doing something wrong. And Jesus drove them out with a whip. And along the way, he flipped over their tables and he took their money that was in bags and jars and dumped it all over the floor of the temple. And I'm belaboring this point. Um, I, I realize that because this is a side of Jesus I don't think we often think about. Um, and I've talked to a number of people over the years who've read this story and they're like, I just, I just can't imagine Jesus would ever do something like that. And I'm belaboring the point to say, if you can't imagine Jesus doing something like this, you're not imagining Jesus rightly. Because he did it. It's very clear. And, and most likely, he did it twice. Because in John, we read that he's doing it at the beginning of his ministry. And the other Gospels say he cleared the temple at the end of his ministry. Well, is John lying? Who's lying? No, he did it two times. And the second time, he's, it says he actually didn't just drive out the sellers and the money changers, but he drove everyone who was buying the stuff out too. Basically saying, I told you this once to knock it off. And you didn't listen. Now get out of here. He did it twice. And, and it's a reminder for all of us that Jesus, I think we've sometimes tried to picture Jesus as kind of like floating on clouds, always speaking soft and gentle, and we can't even imagine that he would do something like this. And we have to correct the way we see Jesus so that it accurately represents what we read about here. We also need to realize, though, Jesus didn't go about doing this all the time. <laughs> like, this was like, you know, it happened maybe once or twice. I mean, Jesus wasn't walking around the streets of Jerusalem whipping people and flipping over tables. Um, so something was going on here that, that got him in a righteous fury. 
And he says, here's what he says. Get these things out here. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is my father's house. My father's house was never meant to be used in this way. It was never meant to be treated in this way. Get it out of here. This is not a house of trade. And at the core of what's happening, especially in the first part of the story, it's all about purity of worship. It's not the core that the sellers and the money changers were necessarily doing something wrong, but they were doing it in the temple, in the place of worship. They used to do that out on the hills outside of Jerusalem. As people would come into Jerusalem, they would find the cattle and the money changers. They could do all their business, and then they could come in and come into the temple. But over the years, that moved into the temple. Why? Well, it's convenient. It's right here. Look at it. We're offering great services to you. We're making your life easier by doing this. And we'll probably make a few extra bucks out of it, too, because we're right here. Everybody is coming by and buying our animals and our, our stuff. And, and Jesus said, no, you don't get to decide how we use the temple. You don't get to decide what comes in and out of the temple. You don't get to decide how we worship our God. It's not based on your own preferences. It's not based on your own opinions. It's not based on what you think is good and right and most convenient. It's about what God has commanded. And what you've done is wrong. And so he rebukes them and he chases them out. of. The, he cleanses the temple. That's a, it's a, you know, every Bible says Jesus cleanses the temple. He cleanses it with a whip and gets them all out of there and says, this is how the temple is supposed to be used for worship of my father purely the way that he's commanded and and they respond by saying what sign do you show us for doing these things you know for a lot of us that seems like a really weird question for them to be asking but um, for them Someone who had authority from God would come doing signs and miracles. Like to do a sign and a miracle showed you had to have some kind of authority from God. And so they're looking at what Jesus just did. He just cleared this massive temple with a whip. And they said, if you're going to do something like this, you better prove to us that you have authority to do this thing. Otherwise, we're moving right back in. You know, they're almost using the sign that, uh, the phrase that has been used over the years, like, who died and made you boss? And Jesus says, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. And later we read that Jesus is talking about the temple of his own body. And so they say, who died and made you boss? And Jesus basically responds and says, I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again. I'm boss. <laughs> That's why I have authority to do this. I am the boss. I can do this. And I'm telling you, this is how the temple is supposed to be run. And that's kind of at like the basic level of what he's saying, but he's saying more because we're reading that Jesus is saying the temple is now my body. His body is going to become the temple in this. And so one of the things that he's saying is he's actually looking at the leaders who are saying, you tell us why you have authority to cleanse the temple. And he's looking at them saying, the way you guys are running the temple right now is destroying it. 
You're letting money changers in. You're letting sellers in. You got cows walking all over, mooing and pooping all over the place. Like, you're ruining the temple. You're destroying it. And it's going to be destroyed eventually. But a day is going to come when I rise again and I'm going to establish a temple that is not made by human hands and a temple that can never be destroyed, even by you. Because the temple is the body of Christ. That's what he said. It's his physical body. And then as we're going to talk about in a little bit, it's us who are part of Christ and in the body of Christ. But you see, throughout, throughout the history of God's people, the temple was the place where you met God. You, if you wanted to be in the very presence of God, you, you went to the temple. And the closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the closer you got to the presence of God. And now that's all changed. There's no temple. If you want to be in the presence of God, how do you get there? You go to Jesus Christ by faith. That's how you come into the presence of God. And so, so he's the temple. And, but even more than that, what, what Jesus is, is helping us see is that it's through his death and through his resurrection that he, he sets up this new temple that can never be destroyed. But it's also through his death and through his resurrection that he has authority to demand pure worship. Because he's died and he's rose again. And now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So he says, I have authority to demand pure worship. But that could kind of scare us because we can look at our own hearts, our own actions, our own inabilities. And we can think, there's really no way I'm ever going to be able to offer pure worship to God. I'm, I'm controlled by my actions and my attitudes, my feelings. I, I often do what I think is best, not what God has commanded me. And so there's no way I can offer pure worship. Um, but the beauty is Jesus didn't just demand pure worship. He also gives us a way to offer him pure worship, which is through his death and his resurrection. Because through his death and through his resurrection, he cleanses our hearts, he cleanses our actions, and he cleanses our worship. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, our worship that goes up to him is perfect in God's eyes. It's perfectly, completely pure. Even if you sing, you're singing worship and you sing a wrong note, the wrong note's perfected and goes up to God in purity of worship. It's a good reminder for us, I think. We have mornings where we're leading, you know, I lead worship, and there's mornings where your guitar just doesn't work, and you're like, man, this is so paltry. Like, this is not honoring to God. It's just God deserves so much more. It's like, yeah, none of your worship is honoring to God until it comes through Jesus Christ, and then it's purified. And, and kind of the, the beauty of all this is, on the one hand, in this story, we see Jesus say, I have authority to demand pure worship, and I demand it from you. I'm also going to give you the way to do it through my death and resurrection. Apart from Jesus, we cannot worship God rightly or even purely. It's only through his death and resurrection. And, you know, it's all really relevant, I think, to us as we try to figure out how to worship God rightly in our current day and age, right? We're not living in first century Jerusalem. We're, we're living in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin in 2022. How do we worship God rightly right now? 
And we have to start asking the questions, okay, who has authority to tell us how to worship rightly? How, how we as God's people should worship him? Who, who tells us what we should and shouldn't do in, in our worship? Who, you know, we, we have to realize it's not us. We don't get to decide those things. We don't have that authority, and our feelings and our emotions don't have that kind of authority either. God is the one that says, here's how you are to worship me. And he demands that kind of pure worship. And, you know, we also have to make the mistake that, that has been made throughout the history of the church is that people come to think that, well, what, what I think is what's best for worship, that is pure worship. <laughs> Right? So you can talk to young people today and they're going to say like the, all the new contemporary songs they're the best. That's the only glorifying way to honor God. And you can talk to older people and they say the hymns, they're the best way to worship God. And I'm going to say actually it doesn't matter what any of you think. What does God think about the songs that we <laughs> sing? Does he care about the style or does he care about the content of it? And we have to make sure that we don't just take our personal preferences and try to jam them in and say, since I like this, God must like it too. And so, again, that has to force us to keep coming back to God's word over and over again, asking God, is this good and right? Is this how you want me and us to worship you? It doesn't matter if I feel better about it or not. Um, but, but even more importantly than this, more importantly than just the worship service, is, is the reminder of where's the temple now? Right? There is no physical temple right now outside the physical body of Jesus Christ that rose from the dead. But, but scripture tells us that we are the temple. And, and I think most of us, have, I grew up understanding that as like, I am the temple. Like, my, I'm, like the, the Holy Spirit dwells in me, I'm the temple. We're each temples. But the Bible says, no, you all are the temple. Every time you read in the Bible, you are the temple, the you is plural, saying like, y'all, together. And Peter says, each one of you is a stone in the temple. Like, all together, God's people built up are the temple of God here on earth. We are the place, corporately, together, where God manifests his presence and his glory in the world. And so when Jesus says, I have authority over the temple on how you worship me, he's not just talking about the church building because this isn't, this isn't the temple. Actually, the church building is where the temple gathers to worship. And so he's saying, this is talking about not just the way we sing in church. This is talking about how we worship God in every part of our life. Like when you're out, when you go back home and you start raising your kids or you go visit your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren, how are you worshiping God when you do that? Or when you get up and you got to go to work tomorrow, how are you worshiping God when you go off to work tomorrow? Or when you bump into your neighbor or your neighbor comes over to your house, how do you worship God when you interact with your neighbor or the person at the grocery store? That's part of our worship. It's not just the singing that we do. Every part of our life is to be a pleasing sacrifice to God. Worship for him. And the only one who has authority to tell us how to do that is Jesus Christ. He demands it from us. But then he also says, you're going to fall down. You're going to mess it up. 
And so I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again so that you can do that. So you can offer pure worship to me. That if we come to Jesus by faith, our hearts are cleansed, our actions are cleansed, and our worship is cleansed. Our lives are cleansed. And then we can go out into the world and we can live, we can lay down our lives as a living sacrifice of praise and worship to our God. We can draw into his presence. We can manifest God's presence in the world. And so, I mean, wherever we're at, whatever we're doing, it doesn't matter where, we can live in worship to our God. And so this story is a reminder to us that as we go out from here and we live our lives, we keep our eyes on Jesus, we recognize he has the authority to tell us how to worship. He, through his death and resurrection, he cleanses us so we can offer up worship. And so we just keep looking to him and saying, I want to please you. And I want to glorify you with every aspect of my life. Help me do that. And we can pray that our lives will be a pleasing and pleasant sacrifice to God. Let's come to him in prayer. Father, we, we come into your presence because of what your son Jesus Christ has done. We, Father, it's incredible for us to think that right now as we're speaking to you, we are in your presence. We are in the Holy of Holies. And Father, we come to you with that awe and reverence. And we're thankful for what your son has done to bring us into your presence, to cleanse our lives. Father, we ask your forgiveness. We know that we, uh, you demand pure worship and we fall so far short of that. We don't often come before you with reverence. We often live our lives based on what we want and what we need. We often try to offer you worship that we like and not what's pleasing to you. And so, Father, we ask your forgiveness for that. Um, and we're thankful that you offer us that forgiveness. And, Father, we, we pray that, that your spirit would move in our hearts and our minds and it would transform us so that more and more each day we would offer up worship that is pleasing and honoring and glorifying in your sight, not just as we sing here on Sunday mornings, but worship that is pleasing to you as we raise our kids and go to work and go to the grocery store. Father, may we bring glory and honor to you. Lead us, cleanse us, forgive us, and help us to bring glory and honor to you out in the world. And we pray that through that, your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.